This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Eric Larson is a brilliant narrative writer of history. His books, including The Devil in the White City, about a killer lurking on the edges of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, are masterpieces of that art. In that book, he wove together a real-life thriller with an essential bit of history of my hometown. His latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, is an account of life in London during the Nazi air blitz of 1940 and paints a portrait of how Winston Churchill led the country through that crisis. Unintended as they were when he wrote the book, there are some useful lessons here for our leaders today. Here's our conversation. Eric Larson, it's uh, it's so good to see you. I'm a, an avid, huge reader and a huge fan of your work. And I want to talk to you about the lives of two great writers, uh, Winston Churchill and Eric Larson. <laughs> but I want to start with Winston Churchill only because I read uh, your, your latest book, The Splendid and the Vile, like many people did during this crisis that we're going through, this pandemic. And the issue of leadership comes up. President Trump has a bust of Winston Churchill in the White House, I'm sure you know, in the Oval Office. What inspiration should he have taken from Winston Churchill? In this, in these pandemic times? Yes. Everything. <laughs> Apparently, though, he's taken nothing. I mean, I think, I think the, key, um, uh, the key thing that uh, would have been nice to have taken away from Churchill's experience and Churchill's sense of leadership is it's a sense of empathy for what the country's gone through, um, maybe an expression of that. I mean, I could see, I could see a Churchill in this time you know, doing a speech devoted to the to the quotidian heroism of the average American, at least those of us who have actually tried to quarantine, tried to wear masks, and so forth, that would have been an absolutely lovely thing. But uh, just, I mean, there are so many other aspects of church's leadership that we can talk about that are currently lacking. You know, we should talk just about what leadership is uh, through the prism of Churchill, because your book focuses very much on the the German Blitz of of London during uh, 1940 at the beginning of the war. Could Britain have survived that Blitz without Churchill's leadership? Boy, you know, I make it a point not to engage in speculative history, um, uh, but I can talk about I can talk about what Churchill did bring to the moment that helped everybody get get through that period. I should point out, though, first that uh, this book, when I when I set out to do it, it's not my intention at all to do a book about leadership. My goal was simply to write about how people on a daily basis, how the Churchills, the Churchill family, his advisors, how they got th- through this horrendous period, essentially from, from May 10, 41, 40 to May 10, 1941, how they got through it on a daily basis. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, these pandemic times, uh, an awful lot of people have come to me to talk about, to talk about leadership because that, that is the thing that seemed to help, well, very clearly help get the British uh, public through that, that, that awful nightmare. And so I, I've had to think about um, uh, Churchill, about, about, about leadership, and, and he, he, was, he, he brought um, uh, excellent leadership skills in a number of ways. First of all, he was very aware of the power of symbolic acts. Um, even at, the, at the, the simplest end of the continuum, uh, uh, his, the fact, for example, that he would never refer to Hitler by name. He would always say that man or that bad man, which when you think about it is a very interesting way to sort of, in a very quiet way, diminish the, 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 the perceived threat of your opponent. That's at the, at, the, at the very quiet end of the continuum. You continue on to, to where, you know, uh, after bombings, he would visit the bombed out areas and, and, and offer support 
um, uh, and, and just and be there and show actually true emotion. The first time he did this, um, the day after the first deliberate bombing of London by the Luftwaffe, um, that, that occurred on September 7th. The next day he visited the severely damaged dock area of, of, of London. And um, before he, he, he set out, I mean, there, there, there was considerable concern um, by his advisors that he might not be welcome there, that there might be uh, antagonism because, you know, how, how could he possibly have let um, the, the Luftwaffe through and how could he have let this happen? But he arrives, um, uh, gets out of his, his, his car, he's got a minimal entourage, minimal security detail. He arrives and, and walks uh, among uh, the people and, and they are, they just love it. They are, their spirits rise. Um, he shows true emotion. I mean, Churchill was not afraid to weep. <laughs> what an anomaly that is, right? Right. Um, he was not afraid to weep and, and it was very, very su- supportive for, for people. But also, um, another, another sense of the, you know, the symbolism and how important it was, Churchill was, um, for, all, for all intents and purposes, essentially fearless. Um, and, and fearlessness, I, I think, is infectious. Um, he seemed to understand that. You know, he, he, he was always, uh, always projecting a sense of confidence, a sense of courage. He was also a guy who, whenever there was an air raid, he was more likely to go to the rooftop than he was to, to go climb down into a bunker. One of my favorite moments that I came across was, you know, he was having, having a, a dinner party um, uh, at his uh, armored apartment, and he was, um, they were, you know, having a nice, nice conversation, and then this quite severe air raid began. And uh, Churchill, um, uh, as one does, um, uh, brought his guests and his couple of his staff up to the rooftop to watch this raid as it unfolded. And as he's up there on the rooftop, he starts quoting Tennyson. He starts <laughs> quoting a poem called Loxley Hall, which can be read as, as a poem that foretells of the coming dangers of aerial warfare. Yeah, he, uh, the other thing that was striking to me in reading your book and, and other biographies of Churchill is he was also willing to concede failure. He was willing to acknowledge mistakes. He gave people a sense of confidence that ultimately they would prevail, but took accountability when things didn't work. And that is an important quality of leadership, it seems to me. Yes. Well, well it's also, yeah, I, I mean, that cuts also to, to, to one very, very important aspect of, 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 of leadership for Churchill, you know, has to do with his his oratory, his oratorical skills. And I'm not talking now about this great, les bons mots, these terrific phrases, you know, um, never has so much been owed by so many to so few. Those are terrific and wonderful things, but, but there was something much more, much more organically powerful about his speeches. First of all, first of all, he, he, he was very aware of the importance of telling his audience the truth telling them the reality of the situation, sometimes to the point where you know, he terrified his audience. We know that from, from uh, uh, so-called home intelligence reports, which were done on, a, on a, a continuing basis using multiple sources to try to gauge public opinion. Um, but you know, he would give them the, the unvarnished truth, the ground truth is how I, I, I like, to, like to describe it, because you know, he understood that the, the populace knew the score. They, they were going through this on a daily basis as well. What are you going to tell them? You're going to give them happy talk? You're going to say, oh, don't worry, the Luftwaffe is going to disappear in a couple of weeks. <laughs> this is going to cause you know, significant dissonance and morale is going to plummet and so forth. So, so he was very good about doing, you know, being, you know, being very realistic about the, the, the ongoing situation. But then he would provide realistic grounds for optimism. Again, not happy talk. But, but realistic grounds for optimism, you know, describing in one case the power of the RAF, the fact that Britain had a navy, um, and people seemed to forget that, and, and so forth. And then would come these rhetorical flourishes that would literally and metaphorically get people rising out of their chairs, you know, willing to get out there and fight. But I think one of the most subtle things about Church's leadership, one of the things that, that that, 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 you know, you, you had mentioned two great writers. I mean, I aspire to write as many books as Churchill has written over his lifetime. Um, uh, but, you know, Ch- Churchill, was, uh, Churchill was, in fact, a terrific writer, but he's also a terrific reader. He had a tremendous grasp of the grand sweep of, of British history. And what he tried to do um, repeatedly was to place his audience in that grand history, to make his audience feel 
part of that thrilling story of, as he, would, as he put it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly, as our, of our great island story. And, and, and he succeeded in that. He made people feel as if it, you know, it was up to them to, to carry the herald of British history and, and, and the empire into battle. So you know, he was a very powerful leader in that respect. He also drew people around him in whom he placed trust and in whose counsel he took seriously. Lord Beaverbrook is a great character in, in, in that epic uh, in British history. And in your book, he drafted him to essentially overnight re, uh, build the British Air Force to compete with, with, with the Germans. Uh, and he did it miraculously and tried to quit time after time and Churchill inveigled him back, but the um, fourteen times he tried. <laughs> the ability to to attract that kind of talent and also to manage that kind of talent and take what the value of that talent is is an important part of leadership as well. Yes, this is a very important aspect. You know, you know, he, he did not he he understood the importance of you know, as I said when his speeches he he wanted to be as realistic as possible. By the same token, he needed to know what the real story was that was going around him. And so he appointed advisors who he was confident would tell him the truth and would not, would not suck up, would not, you know, well, would not, would not suck up. I was going to use some other vernacular term there. But, but, it's a podcast. Um, feel free. <laughs> but it was very important for him to know what the ground truth was. Um, let's, let's, take, let's take Lord Beaverbrook, uh, Max Aiken. Um, they, they had been friends for a long time. Their friendship tended to ebb and, and, and wax and wane, depending on circumstances. But fundamentally, they, they were friends. And, and Max Aiken, Lord Beaverbrook, was uh, was <laughs> was was widely reviled, uh, including by uh, Churchill's wife Clementine. And uh, um, uh, but nonetheless, Churchill Churchill had a sense that this was the man for for the task at hand. And again, you know. It, what, what, what Churchill recognized from, from the moment he became prime minister was that, A, the invasion threat from, from Germany at that point was very real, um, especially after the fall of France, if, if that were to happen. And he recognized, though, that the one thing that would stop Hitler, um, from, uh, that would prevent Hitler from invading England, from being able to do so, was um, if, if Britain could deny the Luftwaffe air superiority. Um, this mean, and, and, and Churchill recognized that, that the only way to do that was with fire aircraft. Bombers at this point were, were, were somewhat irrelevant. I mean, they, they became more and more important over time. But the key element was fighters, fighters that could go on, go up and take on the, British, the, the German bombers, the German fighters, and so forth. And he recognized that they did not have enough and that, that not enough of these fighters were coming online. So that's why he appointed Lord Beaverbrook. He figured Lord Beaverbrook, who had a reputation for being able to shake things up, would be the man to supercharge the aircraft industry. So he, he created an entirely, you know, this is within, within 24 hours of becoming prime minister, he, he created an entirely new ministry, the Ministry of Aircraft Production, making Beaverbrook the minister of aircraft production. And, and sure enough, Beaverbrook turned things around in, 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 in miraculous fashion. Not quite as miraculous as, as Beaverbrook liked to, to promote in retrospect, but he did an amazing job in, in building up, building up uh, uh, forces. Another guy um, who, uh, Churchill, who Churchill appointed to a key post was, was Frederick Lindemann, a.k.a. the prof. Um, he, he also was hated by just about everybody, although in this case Clementine actually really liked him, and Churchill's kids all liked him because he never forgot a birthday. But he was this dour, gray, kind of depressing guy um, who Churchill appointed to be his personal scientific advisor, which was essentially a mandate to poke his nose into anything, anywhere. And, and anybody who, who was on the receiving end of Frederick Lindemann's inquiries knew from the get-go that this was not just Lindemann asking, this was Churchill asking. And it was a very, very powerful thing to do um, because you know, Lindemann had what became this, this conduit, again, of, of, of reality, of ground truth, of what was really happening um, in, you know, among British forces, among the populace, and so forth. Yeah, and his, uh, if I recall this correctly, one of the things that he was working on were radar devices and ways to out outmaneuver the Germans strategically and so on. And, and Churchill believed in him. Yeah, now, 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 you know, everybody has their, their quirks and flaws. And the prof, 
the prof, you know, well, uh, once again, he was a very difficult guy to deal with, and he, and, and he had his personal obsessions, like these, some of these sort of crackpot weapons that he, 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 he loved to pursue, and, 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 and he knew his man, Churchill, loved these crackpot weapons also. So that was one element that was a, a very sort of interesting, you know, s- sort of side story about how, yes, he had these terrific advisors, and yes, they gave him the realistic portrait. He gave them the realistic portrayal of what was going on, but he also he could also be extremely difficult, which does cut to the idea of, you know, Churchill's deft ability to manage these difficult characters. You you know what's so great about your books is you weave narratives together, and often from the personal perspectives of of various players in the story. And you you also uh, write about how the Germans were viewing Churchill and how the Germans were viewing the Brits and the frustration they felt with his unbreakable spirit that they could not understand why he didn't just surrender. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, first of all, I I really felt it was important to try to get get a sense of, of of how uh, Germany, how German leaders were, were, were evaluating what, what was happening, because it's, it's a counterpoint that actually is, is often missing from, from, from works on, on, on Churchill. And what I was struck by, as you, know, as you point out, it, it just seemed as though Hitler and his top, uh, top guys um, had a blind spot um, about Churchill. They, they could not understand what was motivating this man. I mean, they, they, they saw him actually as, as kind of Kind of nuts because how could he possibly hope to go on? You know that he could possibly he would be annihilated by the German war machine, and they couldn't understand. Hitler couldn't understand why he was not accepting the various peace feelers that that Hitler was putting out throughout that that period. And finally, of course, uh, Hitler gets sufficiently sufficiently fed up that he authorizes the first deliberate bombings of London, and that was the September seventh, nineteen forty start of what we know as the Blitz. So I, I raise this at the top because there's an obvious parallel between uh, crisis to crisis and a, an obvious lack of parallel between how two leaders uh, deal with it. But in many ways, as eccentric as he was, Churchill was a, a model of leadership in that moment, maybe the critical element in allowing Britain to survive. Last note on Churchill, the other running story right now is the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, which which created a Black Lives Matter movement around the world. And one of the statues that was assaulted uh, in London was a statue of Winston Churchill because his attitudes on race were quite different than the prevailing winds of today. Yeah, yeah. No, no question. You know, um, uh, uh, first of all, you know, I have to emphasize, you know, I'm writing about a, a particular period where he really truly was the man of the hour. But make no mistake that Churchill was, at heart, an old imperialist. And he, he had all the baggage of, of, of his era with regard to people of color and race and so forth. You know, does that mean that you need to take down his statue? You know, that, that's up to the people who, who feel strongly enough to, to, to go after it. But the fact is that uh, he, he really was the man for the hour in this period, 1940-41, through, through, through the end of, of the war. And, um, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily forgive everything else, but you you got to take a look at that as a, a, a very, very, very important and valid uh, period in, in, in his life in terms of contribution to... to Without to question. Well, we're going to have to go through that in many different contexts because yeah. people grow up in different eras and uh, humans are imperfect. Yeah. And, and Churchill was one of the more imperfect, um, actually. Yeah. But in the ways that he was uh, strong, uh, he made uh, a mark on history that, that has to be noted. And you, you capture it so well. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. So let's talk about the other great writer. Let's talk about you. (laughs) Uh, I know that you uh, were born in Brooklyn and raised on Long Island. What did your folks do? Were they writers? My my mother actually was uh, a, a, a 
she was a substitute teacher, but also she loved to uh, she loved to write uh, mystery stories. I actually had one published in I think it was Family Circle magazine or something like that. And so she she loved to write, and she was constantly working. But my dad was a professor of speech and theater at Brooklyn College, and eventually the chairman of of that department. He was a writer as well. He did biographies, did a biography of Robert Ingersoll, and so forth. So, yeah. And just curiously, uh, where'd your where the Larson family? How did the Larson family find their way here? <laughs> where we hail from? Yes, my my parents. Well, I got I've, I've got Norwegian and Swedish roots back in back in wherever, and they hailed from uh, Minnesota and South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You you mentioned your your mom uh, wrote a, a mystery story. You were a huge aficionado as a kid of mystery stories. Why? Well. I remain, I remain, a, I remain a huge aficionado of, of mystery stories, but they're these days on a little bit more sophisticated level than the things that enthralled me back then. I was a huge. This is what I assume you're alluding to. I was a huge fan of the Nancy Drew books, not, yes. not the Hardy Boys, but the Nancy Drew books. I, I had a, yes. I had a real crush on, on, on Nancy Drew. I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to lead her life in, in the worst way. You know, getting out there and. And you know, investigating this, that, and the other thing. So I love, I love those. But I, you know, I, I segged on to 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 you know um, to to more moody detective things. I mean, I still love them. I mean, I, one of my favorite authors after after Nancy Drew was Ross McDonald. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and then I never liked John D. McDonald, but I like Ross McDonald, and then Raymond Chandler, of course, and Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, is my yes, yes, all time favorite. So, but mysteries, I still. Yeah, give me a good mystery. Give me a good thriller. I, I'm a I'm a happy man. And do, how much did that that experience and that sense of sensibility shape your own style of writing? Because you you know your your stories unfold in, in a very novelistic way, even though they're 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 books about history. Uh, you're a storyteller, and uh, there are elements of suspense. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you, you sense the influence of, of, of that kind of writing. Well, I, 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 very, I very, uh, very definitely try to keep in mind how, how novelists do what they do and apply what I can to, to, to what I do. And again, I really have to emphasize that I'm talking about novelistic techniques. Yes. It's not, it's not about making anything up, but it's about using some of the techniques that, that, that novelists routinely use to, to apply them to the telling of historical stories. You know, for example, withholding. You know, you know what's going to happen, but you, you don't necessarily run that out immediately. You wait, you know, you, you, you want your readers to think, okay, what's, what's going to happen? You know, I know what's going to happen, but, you know, I'm not telling you until it's the appropriate time. You know, cliffhangers, things like that. And that's that's to me where the where the great fun is. You know, when I get to the point where I have my my final draft, um, uh, which of course never turns out to be final, but when I get to the point where I have my final draft, um, or actually, sorry, maybe a better way to put it is my first real um, draft. Then comes the fun part because then I can apply those techniques, and, and invariably for me that means laying the entire book out on the floor of my home. And, and and just um, trying to trying to see where where it's it's effective to cut away and leave people wondering where it's effective to have uh, to to withhold information and and, and that's where the, the the art of it comes in. That's the part I really love. People have asked me, well, you know, yeah, I yeah, I am the author of four failed detective novels. <laughs> you know? I am, um, and and people people tell me or ask me, would you ever want to you know, write a novel again at some point? Now I will never say never, but I'm having too much fun with this. I for some reason uh, somehow I I, I I feel that I found the thing that gives me gives me joy, yeah. <laughs> if you will. I enjoy this whole process. I enjoy the research, especially martinis in the hotel after the day is done. <laughs> I enjoy the research. Um, I, I, I love the writing. So it, it, everything, it just, it, it works so well for me. You know, and I want to talk a, a little bit more in a second about, uh, about your, your particular style of, of organizing your work. But there was a period then uh, where you, 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 were, you thought maybe your storytelling would play out uh, in cartooning. You, uh, as a teenager, you were uh, you you talk about failed novels. You submitted a bunch of failed cartoons to the New Yorker. Oh yeah, yeah. One of my one of my career goals in high school was to 
was to be a New Yorker cartoonist because I loved the New Yorker cartoons, especially the cartoons of Charles Adams. I was yes. a Charles Adams addict from way, way back. <laughs> and I would do my, my cartoons and I would send them, send them in, you know, take them down to the mailbox. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm wrong, but in my mind's eye, I, these things came back within like 24 hours. <laughs> You know, yeah, they were not interested in my cartoons. They were, you know, often very, very kind. I think they knew that there was some, some lowbrow kid, you know, doing these cartoons, and that they wanted to sort of nurture that, or, 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 or maybe not. But anyway, yeah, that was that was a big part of it. They they said you had the cartooning skills of a great writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you went off to uh, you went off to the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, I went there because my girlfriend went there, and we broke up two weeks later. I had the same experience uh, <laughs> at a different school. Um, uh, you, hopefully not with my girlfriend. No, I'm not going to take responsibility for that. That's on, <laughs> that's on you. Uh, but you, you studied Russian history. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What drew you to that? You know, it's one of those... You know, Jesus take the wheel, you know. I mean, in, in this case, I, you know, I was at Penn, and uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with myself. Uh, you know, immediately prior to going to Penn, I was pretty sure I wanted to become a New York City cop. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think I was influenced by, you know, like, like, like you know, uh, Serpico and all that stuff. Um, and then I was thinking, well, maybe I'll be a history professor. You know, because I kind of like the idea of walking around in tweed and smoking a pipe. You know, at that point in my life, there's a big. By the way, there's a big gap between being a New York City cop and a, and, and a tweedy professor. There is a huge gap. Yeah. <laughs> and and had I joined the NYPD, they would have recognized it very 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 soon afterwards. But 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 no. So 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 um, I started to decide. Okay, for want of anything better, I decided I'm going to be a history. And I took an introductory course to Russian history by Professor Ryazanovsky, who actually was an exiled former prince. Um, and he was the most captivating lecturer, funny, dynamic. And I fell in love with Russian history. Fell in love with Russian history. I didn't want to do anything else. And so I started taking Russian history, uh, Russian um, uh, lit classes, I started studying Russian intensively five days a week at 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, loved that. I've forgotten everything, so please don't say anything to me in Russian. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, and, and I owe it all to, to Professor Ryazanovsky. I mean, it just totally changed my, my, my life and outlook. But you've never written a book set in or around Russia. I have not. And, and, and you know, I would, I would love to. I mean, some of the characters, uh, you know, from from early Russian history, from the Tsarist era. I, I, I mean, Catherine the Great, I just, what a, what a character. But I, I, I really do feel in that case that I would really need to know Russian very well. I would need a fine-grained knowledge of the language and, and, and grasp of it because, you know, I, I just wouldn't want to have to use secondary sources for something like that that I would just so love to, to get into. So I would probably never end up doing a book centered in, in Russian history. Of course, never say never. Never say never, <laughs> you know. Uh, you, uh, you went to work for a publisher after you, in New York, Grosset and, and, Gun, and Dunlap after you left college. And then you, uh, and then you turned your... Which were, by the way, ironically, Circularity, they were, at that time at least, the publishers of the Nancy Drew books. Oh, is that right? That's not why I went there, but I, that was sort of something I found out after the fact. <laughs> I see. Did you... Um, but then you turned to journalism. Why? Very straightforward story there. I was working in publishing. And the reason I was working in publishing, honestly, is because I wanted to make a living um, in, in writing, or at least doing something that approached writing. You know, I, I, I was at a publishing house. That seemed to be pretty close. And, and every morning I got up super early and was working on one of my failed novels. Um, and then in my first year at that job in, in, in New York, I went to see the movie All the President's Men with some friends. Uh huh. And, you know, I hate to trivialize it by calling it an aha moment, but when I left that theater, I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to bring down a president. <laughs> that, was, that was, I. Yeah. You weren't the only one, my friend. That, that, that a whole generation of journalists were. Well, actually, were, I remember uh, from a, that a, era. The cover of an Atlantic Monthly issue um, after I had, had had this epiphany, and it showed. Uh, 
it showed the Woodward and Bernstein characters, uh, uh, you know, Redford and uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman yeah, uh, sitting at their desk and on the cover saying, wow, oh, you know how many journalism students just, just you know, applied? <laughs> that kind of thing. So, but that, yeah, but that did change, change my life. However, um, I had a number of things on my plate. I had a plan to leave the publishing company and go travel in Europe with my girlfriend, for my new girlfriend, for six months. Um, uh, and so, you know, here was this, 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 this idea of, of going to journalism school, and I decided once again I was going to let fate take a hand. So I thought, okay, I'm going to apply to one journalism school. If I get in, it's a sign, I'm going to go. And I, I applied to what I believed at the time to be the, the best, that was Columbia, and miraculously I got in, and so... And ended so up at the uh, Bucks County Courier Times in Levittown, Pennsylvania... Bucks County Courier Times, which is a fabulous, fabulous newspaper to, to, to start my career because it was, it was a big newspaper, big enough. Um, it was a very professional uh, newspaper. We had a lot of reporters, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of story room. I worked uh, uh, for the Sunday newspaper. I, I was, had the luxury of writing what we referred to as Sunday specials, yeah. which were single full-page articles on whatever subject I, I chose. And then on Saturday nights, I covered the cops and, and, and finished laying out the paper for, for you know, for, for, for the, before it went to the, the presses. It's terrific experience all around in terms of writing long pieces. And yeah, that's, that's incredibly lucky to have that opportunity that, that soon. Hugely lucky. And in fact, um, uh, you know, what happened... <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm always letting fate take a hand. I don't know why. It's not happily fate, fate's working out. So working keep, out so keep, far. keep doing it, yeah. But you know, I, I, I um, you know, there I was working at the working at the at the Bucks County Courier Times, and I, you know, foolishly, I actually thought I wanted to be a beat reporter. So I, I actually applied for an opening, and I got turned down for a new hire, and I was so pissed. But I sent my resume out to everybody I knew who was in the business in, in, at a decent newspaper. One of my friends um, was uh, at, uh, worked in the Pittsburgh Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. And I sent my resume, sent my, my good clips, and I had the clips because I was writing these Sunday specials. I had the good clips. And so she passed them around. One thing led to another, and I was working for the Wall Street Journal in Philadelphia. I couldn't, be I couldn't believe my luck. Um, so, And then moved on to San Francisco. Yeah, I loved I loved working for the Wall Street Journal in Philadelphia. There's no longer a, a journal bureau there now, by the way. But man, to me, it was the best place to do writing and reporting. I, you know, I had I had the first Wall Street Journal cover, you know, page one leaders about that's what they were called, page one leader about a dead guy. You didn't, they didn't do posthumous stories. I had the first one about a dead guy. It was about Frank Sindone, a loan shark in Philly. And I guess the reason they allowed me to get by with this is because he wasn't dead when the story started. <laughs> and I remember the day that I got the call from the head of the uh, head of the Philadelphia uh, Police Organized Crime Division, and he said, "Well, I think you better change your su your subject." I said, <laughs> well, "Well, why?" And he says, "Well, I just found Frank this morning in two trash bags." <laughs> but anyway, I love. I but it went. But the story went. Huh? The story. The story went. So it went. I loved. I loved Philly. But the, the problem. The good thing and the bad thing about the journal at that, at that time was that if you did well, I uh, did do well, um, they wanted to transfer you. And so they tried to transfer me to Detroit, which was an incredibly plumb position at the time because that's where the business, you know, the, the big business was. I went to Detroit, looked around, hung out. It, I didn't want to go. It just was not my thing. I realized then that my career was very nearly... Uh, probably over because that's the culture at the Wall Street Journal. You know, if you don't accept a transfer, you, your career could be done. Then another transfer offer came through for LA, and I said, "I don't want to go to LA. My career is already over, so now I'm not going to go." So that's that's two strikes. Then a third strike was not, not third strike, but then a third offer came in to go work in San Francisco. And to me, I was like, "Okay, okay, I don't want to go, but if I got to go somewhere, I'm going to San Francisco." And that really tied back to my love of Dashiell Hammett and the Maltese Falcon, yeah, and, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and you did well there. And you you the Wall Street Journal at that time had these A heads, these long uh, these long feature pieces. Um, I worked uh, my journalism was at the Chicago Tribune. They had something called Column One, which was sort of a version of that, where you could write long feature takeouts on the front page of the paper. That became your specialty. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, before the before the redesign, and I'm still not fond of the so-called redesign, but at the time, the, the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal was a very distinctive thing. There was a column one leader on the left, column six leader on the right. They both had their, their sort of their sort of gestalt, and then there was the A head, which ran all the way down the center the center column. There still are A heads in the current journal, but I think they've been somewhat marginalized, relative at least to, to my experience. And these A-heads were the thing that, <laughs> that I most love. I mean, I've always been an aficionado of the insignificant. And that's what these stories were. You know, the, the, the ethos was that the, the, the less significant that story was, the better. And, and so I didn't know it would become my specialty, but it really, really did. And those were the luxury days of the journal when you could spend an entire month on a story that by the time you got it pared down to the appropriate length for, for, you know, for, for acceptance into that column, was essentially four double-spaced pages. You know, I mean, an entire month to be able to do that. People do that now like 10 times a day to try to feed the, yeah. the digital it's beast. It's different, it's different. Yeah. It's a lot different. And so, so, so I love these things. And, and, and in fact, one of the, <laughs> my first, maybe the thing that gave me the, you know, just the, the light that went on about these A's was my very first story. This is going to date me, but anyway, my very first story, my bureau chief, uh, uh, again, I was in Philly, really a terrific bureau chief, by the way, taught me so much about writing and editing, things that I still use to this day. Um, he assigned me to do a, <laughs> an A-head about a video dating, high-end video dating service in Washington, D.C. So video dating, you know, who remembers what that was? But anyway, <laughs> sort of the, the Tinder of the day. So, so I did that and, 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 and actually wrote about it, and, and I dated um, one of the people I met on this video dating thing for about nine months. It was a, quite a serious thing. And I, and I wrote this, this, uh, this, this A-head in the first person about the whole, the whole saga. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I got like 500 love letters from, from readers saying, well, you know, would you marry me or whatever? You know, is this really so fun? And it was also the one and only time that I have been investigated by Bob Woodward and the Washington Post. Is that right? They read the piece. Uh, he read the piece, apparently. And he didn't believe it. He, he didn't believe it. He, it was too perfect. And, and, and it was. I mean, this was a magical event in my life. He's a, he's, he didn't believe it. He didn't believe that this, this woman who I identified as Emily, I did change her name to Emily, that she existed. So he assigned one of his crack investigative reporters to, 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 to look into it. So I get this call from, from this woman, uh, this reporter, and, and she, she, she's, she's like, you know, well, so Bob doesn't believe the story, and, and we're, we're hoping that we could actually get a chance to talk to, um, talk to, to Emily. <laughs> I was cracking up. I was like, oh. I'd be glad to help you. Let me call her first. So I called Emily, and she was delighted. She, she talked to him, and that was the end of it. Yeah, so Woodward launched your career and then tried to end it, is what you're, <laughs> is what you're saying. You know, yeah, 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 I, it, this happened just after the Janet Cook fiasco. Oh, yeah. yeah a, a so. Plagiarism in, uh, or, yeah. or an apocryphal story that was made up by a writer there that Caused tremendous, completely apocryphal story that won a Pulitzer. Yeah, right. Remember? Yeah, and it yeah. was a huge, a huge scandal for yeah. uh, for the Post. You left. Uh, you met your wife. She uh, got a job in Baltimore. You left the Journal, and did you know that I'm going to become a writer? I'm, I'm going to write books now. That's that's my future. Well, this was my devil's bargain. Um, I, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, we're going to get married. She got this great job at Johns Hopkins. She's a physician, a neonatologist. She got this great job at Johns Hopkins. Obviously, not something you're going to turn down. And so, and I was ready to leave the journal. I was getting tired. You didn't teach her the art of turning down uh, transfers and promotions. <laughs> no, I didn't. But I, but I, but I, but I was like, okay, okay, you know, this is going to be the deal. I will, I will go to Baltimore um, on the condition that I don't have to earn a living for a couple of years, and I can just work on novels. That was probably my second failed novel, by the way. I should point out that, that just before just before that I, I met the, the, the then managing editor of of the uh, of the Wall Street Journal, uh, Norm Perlstein, just before maybe, maybe a month before this, where uh, at, at Windows on the World, interestingly, uh, in the World Trade Center, and um, he offered me this tremendous promotion, 
Um, and I sat there over breakfast with this great sprawling scene all around me, you know, uh, the early morning light. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I can't, I, I can't take that promotion. And, and moreover, I'm leaving the paper. <laughs> so, but however, however, it was the devil's bargain. And I, I quickly realized at, once I arrived in Baltimore that, yeah, there's something I refer to as the cocktail party identity. And that's something we all have and we all, we all value, although we may not necessarily appreciate how much yeah. we value it. I mean, I had gotten so used to being, going to a party. What do you somebody do? said, what do yeah. you do? And I'd say, well, I, I work for the Wall Street Journal. Now, there was a time also where I felt a little embarrassed about that because that's like working yes. for the man. And, you know, well, you, know well, you, you do all that stuff. So, so, so you know, the, I, I felt so keenly the loss of that cocktail party identity that I started freelancing. I wanted to get my, my magazine pieces out there and started doing longer and, and longer and hopefully better better pieces until one day I had this epiphany and I realized that, look, for all the work that I'm putting into a piece for the Atlantic Monthly, I might as well just write a book. And that's, that's how it began. You, you wrote a book called The Naked Consumer, How Private Lives Become Public Commodities. Yeah. That seems much more relevant today as data is so freely trafficked well, yeah, it'd be much more interesting story today. Uh, much, much harder maybe to, to report. Also, I mean, but, but I was looking at, I was looking at very specifically how uh, how corporations, how corporate entities, uh, marketing firms, and so forth, spy on individual consumers and, and the various ways that they did it, which at the time was sort of a burgeoning thing with, you know, analyzing direct mail. Um, yeah, but also, also in one case, one case, this wonderful, wonderful guy uh, who did uh, you know sort of espionage market research for people, Paco Underhill, um, and he actually dispatched um, actors and so forth into stores to, to to follow people from from product to product, taking a, a recording every time they touched something, everything they bought, and so forth. Which uh, and 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 that that was the kind of fine grained thing that I was writing about. Now, now with data, they don't have to do that. They can follow you uh, everywhere uh, and uh, never, uh, only with, uh, uh, you know, algorithms. A absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's so much more sophisticated now that the stuff that I wrote about was actually laughable. However, having said that it's laughable, um, uh, I was convinced that this book was going to go wild. I was gonna, this thing was going to shoot to the top of the bestseller list. It was going to be the next Hidden Persuaders, you know, which was a, a, way back when. It was the book that sort of, that sort of, sort of re reveal how advertisers really think about their, their their public, and it was a huge, huge success. You know, about how to sell sex, how to sell whatever. So, and I thought my book was going to be that, but I was so wrong. Yeah, you wrote another one called Lethal Passage, The Story of a Gun, and that also has great applicability uh, today. Talk, uh, talk about that. What, what, what caused you to write that book? Was it Baltimore? Or? Yeah, it was, it was Baltimore. Um, uh, there was a period, this, this takes me back to, to the late 80s, there was a period, you know, the so-called drive-by shooting. With this, there, there were, these things were commonplace in Baltimore. And elsewhere, probably in Chicago, still are, as, as still are, sadly, Chicago, yeah. yeah, yeah. But in Baltimore, these were these were very common things. And I would read in the Baltimore Sun about these things. And it's you know, in one case, the thing that specifically started me on this this path was I read this item about a 13-year-old kid who had a sophisticated handgun, it was a Cobra M11-9, um, which as I which became the subject of, of, of this book, um, the, the particular model, you know, not just a single gun, but a particular model of, of this gun. This kid had this sophisticated handgun, which, as I learned, was, was designed initially to be used in, in, in close urban combat in Cuba by, by American invaders. Um, and here it is in the hands of this 13-year-old this, this kid, luckily not a, not a fully automatic weapon at this point, but more now a, 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 a semi-automatic consumer product that the manufacturer gave away free once a month in a lottery. I found all this out, but at the time... I was reading this article in the Baltimore Sun and mentioned this drive-by shooting, no reference to where this kid got this gun. And it started, I started thinking, wait a minute, where, what, is, what is with this blindness? And I, I, I suddenly realized that there was a pattern in the coverage I read about these things. They never talked about the gun. They never talked about where it came from, how these kids got it. And so that's how, that's how that book came about. Yeah, and it's, uh, now we have 400 million weapons on the streets. Uh, they've proliferated since the time you wrote that book. And, uh, well, I have to say that at the time I wrote the book, the book, the book had a significant impact. And I was in close, 
close conversation with a with a, a fairly senior official in the Justice Department who was really trying to to to, to help change things. Um, and then there was a change of administration, and and everything got thrown out the window. We're back exactly to where we were, you know, whenever I did that book, like uh, 30 years ago. Yeah, the book actually appeared in 1994, and that was the year that there was movement on yep. an assault weapons ban and 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 the Brady Bill and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, we have a lot of work to do in that direction. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You moved to Seattle, and you started writing historical nonfiction books. The first, Isaac Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in, in History, uh, which was uh, about the Galveston flood in, uh, hurricane. Or hurricane, hurricane in, 19, in 1900 that killed 10,000 uh, people. What changed in your approach? What, you had done these two books. They were, they were important books, but this was a different style, a different kind of book. What turned you to that form of writing? Well, you, you can almost trace the, the, the evolution. I mean, Naked Consumer was basically a, a series of, of set pieces of, of, of essays on different aspects of this, of this marketing you know, quest by, by the marketing companies of America. The, the, the book Lethal Passage became much more of a narrative because I was, I was really trying to, to follow this particular model of gun, how the, the evolution of its use, how it became the crime gun of the era, um, and all the forces that contributed to that. So there's very much more of a narrative there. Um, but then um, you know, I, I set out to write uh, uh, the, the impetus for, for, for my, my career in narrative nonfiction was actually a book, a novel that I read in 1994 called The Alienist by Caleb Carr. Yes. Mm-hmm. Terrific thriller about old-time New York, 1890s New York, a time when Jacob Reese was really going around writing about the poor, Teddy Roosevelt really was the commissioner of police, and yes. so forth. And I came away from that book with this, this, this rich sense of old New York. And so I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to try to write a nonfiction book about a real-life murder and try to capture the same sense of, 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 of a, uh, the same evocation of, of, of a period. Started looking for a murder. I took out the Encyclopedia of Murder. Started at A. Just continued reading. There is an uh, Encyclopedia I, of Murder. <laughs> yeah, there is indeed, and it begins with A. Um, Holy so, I started, so I started working through just reading, reading. You know, I, I have found through experience that when you're thinking about ideas, it's it, it's it's good to just read wildly and promiscuously and just not pay much attention to whatever. So, so but I came across this murder, and I started. I got interested in it. And I, you know, I thought, wow, this is this could be this could be good. It was not a particularly mysterious thing in the end, however, but there was a hurricane connection to this murder. The hurricane occurred in Galveston. This this man, William Marsh Rice, whose money is responsible for Rice University being founded, he was living in New York. He had a corrupt valet and and uh, 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 and a corrupt attorney. Um, and um, he, he, they were, they were preparing to to kill him um, and, and fake his will and, and get his money. Suddenly, this hurricane comes, um, and um, he can't, uh, you know, he, he he can't stand the idea that all of his investments there are, have have essentially destroyed. So he starts to liquidate his 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 holdings in New York and, and send those funds to to Galveston. The uh, the would be killers realize we we can't do our plot. They were going to poison him with, with, with a banana soaked in arsenic. We have to, we have to kill this guy. Um, and so they, they sped up their, 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 their murder attempt and did it in 48 hours instead of a week to 10 days was the original plan. Um, but it was that hurricane that was the hurricane that became the subject of Isaac Storm. This was the big hurricane, the great hurricane of 1900. It killed um, uh, for sure 10,000, but I think the number, the number, the more accurate number for that, for that coastline in, in, in Texas was up to probably 20,000 hmm. or, or more. And I, being a hurricane junkie, having been raised on Long Island in a glass house surrounded by trees, talk about love-hate, hmm. um, I, love, I love storms, I love storms, and I, and I had known nothing about this. So I started looking into the storm, and, and that's what really drew my attention. 
Um, and and at that point also, I got a, I got a new agent for various reasons. Everybody needs to go through a couple of agents before they settle on one for forever. And and this agent, David Black, I credit him with starting my nonfiction career. Um, you know, I I wanted to write about this hurricane. I gave I approached it in, in a very sort of traditional way. Here's a hurricane, and here's we're going to learn everything about it. And he felt, well, you know, maybe that's not enough. We need a narrative. We need, we need characters in this in this story. You know, who 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 can we hold hands with through the storm? And that was a revelation to me. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I really credit him with with starting me on this on this path. Now, the journey to get that first book proposal done and accepted by my publisher, Crown Publishing, which is still my publisher to this day. Um, was a hard one. I mean, I went through, my, I always refer to my agent as a proposal Nazi. He will accept <laughs> that, he will accept that completely. Um, uh, and I went through, even the, you know, once I started thinking about characters, um, I went through nine different iterations of that proposal before he finally sensed that I was getting ready to dump him, which is true. And that's the one we, we finally pitched to, to, to Crown. And then you wrote what I consider, and I'm a Chicagoan, so you have to consider that, but I consider it one of the great nonfiction books that I've ever read, The Devil in the White City, a saga of magic and murder at the fair that changed America. And it was about this, uh, there were two stories, really, this homicidal killer who was preying on the fringes of the, 19, of the 1893 World's Fair, which was a seminal event in the sort of reconstruction of Chicago that had been destroyed by the fire. And and, the story of Daniel Burnham, who was a great creator of the fair and the city, the great builder who built built the city. Um, That, how how long did that that work take you, threading all of that together? Well, (laughs) all right, so so the story with the devil in the white city is that, you know, that, that was the book. Um, that that after I did Isaac's Storm, I came back again to thinking about doing a, a, a murder story. Um, so this was this was the the alienist inspired book. Yeah, but this was not it, <laughs> because well, yes and no. Uh, I, I I realized after looking again for the right murder. I mean, I wanted to do something with, with a lot of atmospherics, like Gosford Park, that sort of thing. And, and I, I remembered Holmes, who was the murderer in Devil in the White City, yes. or Mudgett, depending on how you want to use it. And I don't remember where I came to him, whether it was under H or M. Um, <laughs> but, but I read about him, and, and, and honestly, I was put off by him. I didn't want to do crime porn. And, you know, acid vats and dissection tables, that's crime porn. I, like I said, I wanted to do something more along the lines of Gosford Park. So, you know, I kept looking for a murder. Eventually just thought, ah, forget it. This is, this is a dead end. I'm not going to do a murder. And I was really very much hard up for, for an idea. And, and I remembered, though, that in a reference in this murder, Encyclopedia of Murder, there was a reference to the World's Fair of 1893. I have since learned that anybody who writes about Holmes has tended to write about the fair glancingly. Anybody who has written about the fair has written about Holmes glancingly. Um, but I remember this fair. And so I thought, yeah, maybe this is a, a big enough deal to write about. And it was the first book that I took out of my, my local library. There was a footnote in the back of that book. I mean, the book that I, I took out was this, was this incredibly boring historical monologue about the fair. But it had, as is so often the case, the juice is in the footnotes. And, and one of these footnotes described the fact that at the World's Fair of 1893, juicy fruit gum was introduced to consumers. And for some reason, that just absolutely lit my imagination. It's like, what? This is a gum that I love and had always loved, and you're telling me this is 100-plus years old? <laughs> um, and so, so I started doing some serious research into the fair, and everything I read just it came to seem more and more magical to me. And then suddenly I realized, wait a minute, I mean, here, the, here is this, this wonderful civic achievement, nicknamed no less the White City, Yes. Um, uh, juxtaposed against the absolute darkness of Holmes and his pursuits, and I suddenly realized, wait a minute, that's the story. It's I don't want to write about Holmes alone because, like I said, I don't want to do crime porn. Don't want to write about the fair alone because I'm not sure. It, 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 I, I wasn't sure at that time that I could, I could have, I could find the narrative that would, would would draw people through the story. But the juxtaposition of the two, a story of good and evil, the devil in the white city. The, the title came to me within 24 hours. 
and, and stuck with me ever since. However, I have to, this is, this is, this is, this is the absolute truth. On the eve of publication of that book, I was absolutely convinced that my career was over, that, that <laughs> critics were going, to, were going to slash me to, to, to pieces because the book broke all the rules. It had two separate narratives that never really touched. Well, actually, they touch in one very small, specific place toward the end. Um, and I just, I was, I, was, I was so gloomy until a friend of mine told me, you know, you should read that review by Janet Maslin. And I was like, oh, I don't read, I don't read my time, reviews. <laughs> I don't read my reviews. Yeah, New York Times. And she said, you should read this. It's like your mother wrote it. Yeah. So. No, I, uh, well, you've gotten a lot of affirmation for that uh, since then. And you've written a, a, a number of other great books, uh, Thunderstruck, Deadweight, Dead Wake, The uh, Last Crossing of Lusitania. I, I loved In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and American Family, and Hitler's Berlin. When you were writing this book, you, there must have been some cross-pollination between research you had done for that book. You, you painted such a rich portrait of, uh, of, of Germany in the 1930s and this gathering storm. So... Uh, y- you didn't. You didn't start off at uh, at scratch on the on on this on this latest book. Oh, oh you mean with the Churchill book? Yes. Well, I didn't start out on scratch with this book, The Splendid and the Vile. Um, but they are very, 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 very different books. Um, yes. Uh, uh, but I should I should I should note that the 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 in the Garden of Beasts um, began in a, in a in a in a sort of a very curious way. Once again, I was I was hard up for ideas and once again fate sort of took a hand I went to a bookstore I was living in Seattle at the time went to a big bookstore no longer in business <clears throat> and just to just to see what the history offerings were what was coming out what the covers looked like and I saw a book uh, a jacket out that I had always meant to read and never had and it was it was uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire so I, I thought oh, I'm going to read this see what see see what happens started reading it and as, incredible book. Incredible yeah. book. And as I read it, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, something I had not, I had not known. Uh, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, William Shire was there. He was there before the war actually began. He was there before we knew that these guys were the monsters that they are. He was there when, when he was more likely to encounter them at a cocktail party than, than anything else. And I, it, just, it just lit my imagination. Like, what would that have been like? to have been living in Berlin in 1933-34 during Hitler's rise. And would that have been you know, terrifying? Would it have been one of the most mundane, quotidian things? I mean, you know, like, like, like if Hitler had driven by, you know, and, I, and I'd seen him you know, while sitting in one of the fabulous cafes, you know, some of which sat up to 1,200 people at that era, um, you know, what would I have felt? And that's what triggered that book. You know, um, Hitler in, uh, in Mein Kampf uh, in 1925 talked about the big lie, the propaganda technique uh, about, uh, you know, about the use of a lie so colossal that no one would believe that someone could have, uh, you know, the impudence to just distort the truth so grandly. I'm not asking you to make judgments about what's going on now, but the, the notion of the big lie as a technique was so central then, and do you have concerns about the era in which we live? You know, <laughs> do I have concerns? Oh, I have so many concerns. It keeps me up at night. That's the, it's a lot tougher actually than, than having to worry about the pandemic. Although obviously they're very, very, very much in, in, inter, interlocked. Um, you know, um, uh, this cuts to some of the research I did for uh, uh, the Splendid and the Vile. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's mm-hmm. propaganda, propaganda minister, is, a, is an important character. Yes, commenting and and, and, and uh, I talk about his propaganda efforts and, and uh, excerpts from his diary, which is fascinating and chilling reading. Um, um, and you know, honestly, uh, uh, page after page after page, I, I found myself thinking, "Oh my God, somebody in the Trump administration." Has has read this diary, has read about Goebbels, and is using him as a playbook. Now I know that that may be extreme, but maybe it's not so extreme. I mean, there were things that that Goebbels did um, that just resonates so much today that it, it it was it was creepy. Yeah, and and uh, he did not have Twitter. He did not have social media. He did not have. I mean, they did control ultimately radio. 
and that was a important tool for them. And you write about that some in the uh, in the book. But I, I mean, I, it, I had the same reaction when I was reading your book. Reading Spider in the Vial. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, again, I was struck time and again about, you know, one one case was. Um, there was a, 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 a what turned out to be an important um, public relations debacle when the Luftwaffe bombed Buckingham Palace. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, as one London cop put it, he said it was a magnificent piece of bombing. Um, so magnificent, actually, that, that it did seem to have been a deliberate attack on Buckingham Palace, meaning an attack on the king and queen, who happened luckily not to be there at, at, at that point. Um, actually, they were there at that point. Um, but they were not they were not harmed by this by this this attack. It was a huge public relations disaster because the British public was just just absolutely outraged at the fact that there would be this attempt to to to, to bomb Buckingham Palace and kill the king and queen. And so Goebbels um, uh, puts out the uh, he, he had these he had these daily meetings um, uh, when he would gather all his people together, and there there is a. Uh, a collection of the minutes of all these that has been published. He would gather all of his, his minions together, all these people, these awful people, as it turned out in the end, um, uh, to, to talk about what they were going to do in terms of you know, uh, uh, getting, getting propaganda out there. And one of the things was centered on this, this debacle of the attack on Buckingham Palace. And Goebbels put out the edict that, we had to, that somebody had to find out. He assigned one guy um, to find out if there were any um, targets of military significance in the vicinity of Buckingham Palace. And if there were, they were going to make it clear that that's what they were going after. And he said then, <laughs> and I love this part, if there weren't any, we need to invent them. <laughs> yeah. And so, and yeah, so, the big yeah, lie. So yeah. Obamagate came to mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no Talk way. Talk about uh, the big, big lie. It is chilling, uh, really, to read and put in a in a modern context. So what's next? What has the muse visited you yet as to what your next uh, project will be? You know, I'm, I'm back in the, I'm back in what my, my friend and publicist, Benny Simon, calls the, the dark country of no ideas. Whenever I finish <laughs> a book, for whatever reason, I start with a blank slate. It's like, it's like any other ideas that I've considered way back in the past just somehow have withered and died. So I, I have nothing, uh, nothing particular on my plate. I have a number of ideas that I, I'm mulling. In fact, I just had a conversation with David Black, my agent, talking about various ideas and you know asking him to his opinion to rank you know which what what he thought of these. And, and you know at this point, when I've been living with these things for so long, it's very hard to to even think about you know gosh, which am I passionate about? Passion has nothing to do with it. It's like which has yeah, because this is a this is a commitment of your life. It's not just a a, a passing thing. Right. It's like which which of these which of these ideas has the has the you know fits all the criteria that I have established for for you know that a book has to have before I will embark on it. One of them being there has to be a, a, a potent central narrative arc. That's that's something that, that I cannot be without because that's what will compel readers to read along. And it has to be an organic element of whatever that historical event was. Then there has to be a really, really rich archive of, 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 of materials, fine grain stuff, diaries, transcripts, wiretaps, you know, that kind of thing is yes. fantastic. Um, and it, but it also has to be something that I'm interested in, and as you, as you note, that I'm going to be willing to live with for four years. I often yeah. equate it to looking for a spouse. You know, yeah. I mean, you got to choose very carefully. <laughs> and and uh, finally, The Devil in the White City, for years there's been talk that it would be produced on film. Hulu apparently is producing a series uh, yes. around the book. When, when can we expect to see that? You know, th that is the plan, is to have a Hulu series. Um, uh, you know, things have obviously, uh, a wrench has been thrown um, uh, thanks to the, the pandemic. I'm not quite sure what the status is at, at this moment, but that is the latest iteration of the plan for Devil in the White City. And I personally am thrilled. This thing has been under option for since the book came out in 2003, basically, um, by some real A-list characters. Yeah. Uh, just it's it screams out for well, film. It, it screams out for film, but I, th I I would argue it screams out for 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 a limited TV series treatment for for a Hulu style yes. something along the lines. You know, honestly, if if it's half as good as The Handmaid's Tale, which Hulu yes. also did, I will be thrilled. Yeah, um, because you know you have this you have the, this dual plot, and if you don't do both, what have you got? You've got 
you've got you know a period Silence of the Lambs, or you've got a, 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 a right. movie about the fair, which I don't think would would be the box office killer that one would hope. Somehow you you found a way to make it an incredibly compelling story, and I I hope that it translates that way uh, onto the uh, onto the screen. But Eric Larson. Um, Whatever you do next, uh, sign me up to read it, as, <laughs> along with many, many other people. You're one of the great storytellers of our time, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So well, thank, thank you. you. I've enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. Love Chicago. Give, give this video a hug for me. Come, at, come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.